0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: This is episode 202 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Hands On Gloves, the all-in-one revolutionary bathing, grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have two people who I admire so much because of their lifetime of learning. They're lifetime learners, and both took deep dives into horses in their adult lives, too. Let's hear why. is debbie lauks and you're listening to horsemanship radio thanks for joining us horsemanship radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month and i have my producer george with me today hi george hey debbie it's fun to have somebody all the way from florida but i'm with a j in the first part of the name but, but it's not jen how are you
2: I'm doing fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks what so much city? for having me.
1: You bet. I couldn't do it without you. <laughs>
2: <And> <laughs> what city are you in, in Florida? I am in Hollywood, but do not get confused. It's not like, that kind of Hollywood. Okay, I know, I'm I know. in
1: California, know. what?
2: <laughs> exactly, right? It, Florida's it's a very a- interesting place. That's, oh, that's
0: definitely okay. true.
1: So today, we're going to get into these a little bit, and uh, this is where Jen usually says something about the listeners and what we we're up to these days at Flag is Up Farms, but But I will fill in for her and say that there are a lot of great points that come out of these two interviews that we did. We had a great time with Susanna Lane Johnson, uh, who is from Heart of Phoenix and is completely ensconced in horses, but she started it later in life. And you'll have to just listen closely to what she says about hooves, George. You will never in your life know more about hooves than after this interview. And I don't think you're a horse person, so
2: I'm excited. I was going to say, it'll be more than ever. From zero, I mean, we can only go up. Oh, stop.
1: And you will also learn brush hogging, what brush hogging is. Because I brush what brush hogging is. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Don't even get I, I, So it's
2: not brushing hogs. I'm going to know that moving forward. Good okay.
1: Point. I didn't ask that question, but no, it's not. And then James Oliver is our second guest too, and what a dear sweet man he is! And his journey through life has led him to horses as well. And he comes from a not a horsey background at all, but he is a therapist and a counselor now for drug abuse programs. And he found his way because of the qualities of horses through to us, and now works here. So. Excited to talk to both of them and share them with the listeners, and uh, we'll get started with that. Uh, we have our sponsor here, though, Hands on Gloves, and it is a an amazing company created by Jay Michelson, and it was created by animal people for animal people. I love that. They founded it in 2015. Listen in on his words.
3: Hi, I'm Monty Roberts. And am I excited to bring you the news of a revolutionary new all-in-one shedding, bathing, grooming tool, hands-on gloves. They are fantastic. And you believe me, I've tried them all. Hands-on outperforms traditional curry combs, shedding blades, metal bristles, and all those things. Most animals will gravitate to you for more grooming and petting time. If you wear them, your animals will love you more for it. While using the hands-on gloves, you can easily handle water hoses, shampoo bottles, lead ropes, leashes, and anything you want with them on your hands. They are easy to clean and they massage muscles and stimulate circulation while helping to distribute natural oils for a healthy skin and coat. Hands-On is changing the way we bathe, de-shed, and groom our animals forever. Hands-On gloves. They are fantastic.
1: Susanna Johnson is the Officer of Education for Heart of Phoenix Equine Rescue for 10 years now. She didn't begin her work with horses until her adult years, but was an avid reader about them until then. Susanna taught preschool integrated with special needs children for several years, which she believes greatly equipped her to work with horses in all varieties later in life. In 2011, she began her work at the heart of Phoenix and soon discovered that there was a real need for easy-to-understand education on all subjects equine. She has a passion for learning new things and a love for educating people in simple, no-nonsense ways. So she quickly made the educational aspect of the Adoption Center its focus. Welcome, Susanna Johnson from Heart of Phoenix Equine Rescue. I'm so pleased to have you on. How are you?
4: I'm doing fairly well on this rainy day. Fairly
1: well. In this I know. It. We are deep into winter at this point, and I know that you guys work hard out there and mostly outside, so I'm glad to have you inside for 20 minutes or so. We'll, we'll hear a little bit for you, but I kind of want you to forget that we have listeners. I'm going to forget we have listeners, and we're going to go back to that time when you and I sat in a restaurant in Solvang, California in the dark of night not too long ago and had a really geeky, good conversation mm-hmm. about horses and all that you guys do, the amazing things you guys do at Heart of Phoenix. And where is it located so people have a perspective?
4: We're outside of Huntington, West Virginia, over here on the East Coast, in the yeah. Appalachian Mountains. Appalachia. And we had, Adam Appalach-
1: <laughs> we had Adam Black on recently, who has done a lot of
4: work with you guys there, too. What did he win? He won the Appalachian Trainer Face-Off professional division two times in a row well not in a row but two times over the years that we've put it on mm-hmm. he won the first year and he won this past year yeah yeah and he's an amazing
1: guy came out here and interned and just ha- had a lot of fun with him but he got to see a lot of wild horses and that's what I want to get into with you a little bit too is how do you go from not being raised up with horses like, I think you even said your mom was afraid of horses is that right
4: she was you yeah, deathly afraid of them. So I got to interact with horses, probably other than petting them over a fence. I think I got to ride maybe about, I don't know, 10 times or less as a child. And then as I grew up, I had children and my middle child loved horses. When she was six, we gave her riding lessons for her birthday and I worked at a barn to pay for those. Ah. And after I had worked there for a while, they were like, well, we'll just teach you to ride too. So I started riding when I was about 26. Oh, that's
1: amazing! I mean, what a great way to get into it is seeing it from the barn side of it, rather than the romantic mustang on the hilltop that we hear about a lot too. And want to go after that because you saw from the practical side. But you had taught preschool and done some thing with some work with special needs kids and everything. Tell me why you think that equipped you to work with horses.
4: Well, teaching an integrate well teaching preschool on a whole, even if they're what's quote normal children, is a lesson in patience. And diversity, because not all children learn the same way. And then when you mix in autistic and Down syndrome and um, developmental delays and all that, adds a whole new dimension to it. And you have to learn to not only maintain your patience and your composure, but kind of roll with the punches. Think outside of the box. If something isn't working, how can you present it from a different way that Mm -hmm. might make more sense, connect more with that particular child's brain. So at one point I had, I think I had 24 students in all, and eight of mine were integrated special needs children. So it was quite an interesting classroom.
1: That is busy. Yeah, that's hard work and patient work. Give us a tip on how do you keep your frustration down? You've got to be tired some days, and it's got to be frustrating to not know exactly how to help somebody. What do you do that maybe is something we can do with our horses as well? Is that fair?
4: Well, I will tell you what I do with my horses when I get really frustrated or when I get scared because if we admit it, we love horses and we're good at horses and some of us are better at horses than others, but there are still times where you are really either very worried or very afraid of what's going on and either you have to get out of there and regroup yourself or you have to figure out how to regroup yourself in there. <laughs> and yes. What I do, and this is the most ridiculous thing ever, is I sing some mm. stupid song at the top of my lungs because you can't hold your breath and screw up your breathing right. when you're singing. <laughs> That's perfect. At the top of your lungs, huh? Well, pretty loud. I'm not whispering it under my breath. I mean, the horse can yeah. hear it. I, there's been times where the horse has learned how to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb with me. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, if, awesome. you know, that sounds funny, but that is a lot of times what I revert to is Mary Had a Little Lamb because it's got a rhythm to it, it's got simple words. It engages preschool children, so it kind of engages maybe the yeah. horse brain, just the rhythm of it, not necessarily right. that they care that Mary had a little lamb.
1: Right. <laughs> Especially if that's one of those German warm bloods. You know, they don't know anyway what <laughs> we're talking about. Right. But, no. <laughs> but I love that the focus of Heart at Phoenix really changed to educational. We we said that in your introduction that you've made that a front and center, and they're sort of known for it at Heart of Phoenix now, too. What makes you like a... Student that is into that aspect that you feel like you need to share that with other people too.
4: Well, I've always had a love for learning. I learned to read when I was before I entered kindergarten, and I, I could read by the time I was in kindergarten. I was reading on a third grade level, so I've always had a love for learning. And also, I had three parents who had Alzheimer's, and one of the ways that you can combat the all, onset of Alzheimer's is to keep feeding your brain with things that challenging you. Mm-hmm. So. In addition to loving learning, I make it a point to do that to kind of help offset that genetic component of the Alzheimer's. But I just really have a passion for learning. And one of the things that we saw at Heart of Phoenix is that there were truly some cases where it was not intended to be abuse. They just didn't know any better. They thought they were getting a very big dog and didn't Mm -hmm. know the ins and outs of what a horse needed in order to thrive and be healthy. Been talking about it with the board and with Tanean. And some other people, you know, how can we change that? The way we can change that is to provide very simple, very easy to understand education that connects with people. That's not confrontational. And deliberately, you know, I still make a lot of mistakes with my horses. I I was working with a feral horse about eight months ago and got her going pretty good leading. But it didn't even occur to me that I'd hung the blanket on the fence to dry because it was soaking wet. And I was leading her into the barn, she saw that, jerked out of my hands, took off running on all 56 acres, and it was quite a chase to get her back. And I make it a point to, I'll actually get on a live video on Heart of Phoenix after I've got that mistake corrected and say, listen, this is what I did, because we want people to know that, yes, we're considered an expert in horsemanship, but we make mistakes too. And there are still things that we're learning. And I think that really helps connect our audience, because we're not necessarily preaching We are living the journey kind of along with them and sharing what we've learned so that your life will be easier or so that you can keep horses on more of a budget and still in a stellar way. This is
1: what's important, I think, about people that get get into horses later in life. I think in some ways you don't intuit things, so you have to think through them. It's like somebody who has a tougher time learning something thinks through every, or they make every mistake and you think through the process more. So you actually have the reasons why you do things more than people who kind of grew up with horses. And I think really less inclined to make... The same mistakes over and over again, like somebody who doesn't understand why a horse reacts to his own blanket hanging on the fence just like that mm-hmm. and runs fifty-six acres in the other way. Yeah. quite <laughs> right, I think
4: that was quite that, a it's important. <laughs> yeah, I
1: bet. <laughs> it's a good thing you're in good shape. It's an important <laughs> element though, I think, for people to say it's okay that I started when I was sixty-five or whatever. You know, I I really do I think Engaging the brain, like you're saying, is so much um, more fun in life than kind of checking out. Even those that just want to enjoy a nice hop on a horse and ride along, that's great. But I think there's even a deeper level with horses, don't you? That people can really change their lives by understanding the flight animal.
4: Right. Yeah, I think so too. I think in some ways, if you learn to relate to horses well, and you haven't become a parent yet, it will help you with your parenting because parenting mm-hmm. horses and parenting five- and six-year-olds is a lot of the same ball ballgame. That's, that's five- brilliant. and six-year-olds yeah. kick you, and horses will <laughs> kick you. Right. <laughs> Just a thousand horses bite, games. children bite. <laughs> yeah. No, all, all joking aside, though, still, the, the thinking process, obviously the human brain is more advanced, but the thinking process, you can really draw some parallels between horses and younger children at least. Nice. Yeah. Well, in part
1: of our dinner conversation... I was fascinated by you. I could have just listened to you all night talk about the the education that you have found in caring for horses' feet. And I, I want to share some of that with listeners. If we can isolate on that a little bit for a minute, I could really geek out on this. Uh-huh. Tell us, what's the arc that you took to really, why, why did you get into the feet so much? Why did you not understand it maybe? Or why did you think you better understand it better?
4: Well. I worked at a public riding stables, and and we had a really nice horse there, a very well-bred quarter horse, who actually won the EXCA um, World Championship. And he was only like, I can't remember, he was like 25 months old or something when he won it. So he wasn't even three when he won it. And this fella, you know, he was a super talented horse, and they had done a good job training him for the EXCA, but he had the most horrible feet on the planet. They were teeny tiny little feet and Shelley, and they just fell apart over and over again, abscessed, wouldn't hold a shoe longer than six days. Just ridiculous little feet. And so I started, and and the fellow who owned him always said it was because he had four white feet. Well, I have a horse with four white feet, and he's got marvelous feet. And I have never really bought into that four white feet or any white feet are weaker than dark feet. And so I started trying to figure out what I could do to help him kind of, discovered that his omega-3s and his omega-6s were way out of balance for the ratio. And he was being fed on sweet feed with a lot of corn in it, and he had a lot of sensitivity to corn. He would break out in bug bites and things a lot more than the other horses. There were 50-some horses there, and he'd be covered in bug bites, and everybody else would have like two. No, oh. And so... Guy. Well, I brought him to my house because he became unrideable. His feet were so bad. And I asked my boss, I said, can I take him home, kind of make a project out of him? Completely changed what I was feeding him, changed his environment. I grew his feet out three shoe sizes, mm. and they stopped abscessing. You know, we went through this really horrible cycle. And I really learned a lot just in studying how to help his feet. And so after that, then I got a mare. Because I didn't start riding until I was 26, I'm a good rider. I'm a solid rider. You know, certainly not the level of you guys, but I'm a solid rider. But I don't have all the bravery that I think that you tend to have when you've grown up on horses. Mm -hmm. And so I only like to ride horses that make me feel safe. And so I stumbled on this mare, this 18-year-old Tennessee walking horse, Draft Cross mare, who was the most steady-minded thing I'd ever met in my life, but she was so ugly. And I was able to buy her very cheaply because she was so ugly. And we had a good 18 months. We had every adventure that when you're a child, you dream of. We swam in the river, we chased cows, we did it all. But after 18 months, she started tripping when she cantered. And then it just, she kept on and off lame, on and off lame. And so I thought she was getting arthritis because she'd had a hard life. And I stopped riding her so hard. And then it got to be where I couldn't ride her at all. And finally, when we had her x rays, she had ring bone terribly mm. bad. And come to find out that the way that she'd been shod all of her life had left her predisposed to having ring bones. So that started me on the mechanical, the shape part of it being so important for maintaining a healthy horse into their 30s. Because now in the rescue, we see so much improper shoeing. You know, they have long toe, no heel syndrome mm-hmm. everywhere
1: out here. Yeah. Yeah, it's not uncommon, actually. In a rescue situation, I mean, what are you going to say? You're taking in the horse, so you there's no judgment there. It's just that you've got to start. So what were you going to say in a rescue situation? Yeah.
4: People don't know. They don't know that long toes and no heels is a bad thing. Right. They have hired the farrier, and the farrier is the expert, and this mm-hmm. is the way the farrier does it.
1: Or maybe they tried it themselves a little bit, too. Some of of that goes on. But, yeah, no, and they're supposed to be the professionals. It's the same with trainers, too. I know. It's tough. And that's your emphasis on education. Yeah.
4: And if you're stuck out here in rural America, you only have the choices of two farriers. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) That might be true.
1: So what do you do at Heart of Phoenix? Do you guys bring in different farriers? Do you train up your farriers? How do you do that?
4: Well, fortunately at Heart of Phoenix, we've lucked into some talented farriers. Okay. But, and so we haven't had that much of a problem with it. Now we're correcting the problems that we get in and, yeah. and, you know, we might see the long term effects of that. We have horses that go into having ring bone after they've been adopted out five years. And of course, mm-hmm. that's just the way it goes. But, yep. but it's one of the reasons why the education on our part of Phoenix Facebook page and our blogs is important because maybe we can get people to realize that's not what we're supposed to be doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what, do you, so besides I hear diet for sure, and then good farrier for mm-hmm. sure, what else do you do? Do you keep them walking on any footing that helps out there? Do you keep them, do you keep them barefoot a lot? Or do you try to put shoes on fronts maybe? Mm-hmm. Cause you've got them in herds I think too,
4: right? Yeah, we try really hard to keep them barefoot. Most of our thoroughbreds we're not able to do that with. And um, thoroughbreds are one of the things that really kind of fascinated me. They added to my studying about hooves because it's it's, invariably we get in a thoroughbred and it has terrible feet. And it's like, why do they all have terrible feet? And in the East, I don't know, you know, you have thoroughbreds out there in California. I don't know how things are there, but in the East, the thoroughbreds, they're worth a lot of money. They're born in a folding stall that's bedded very deeply with straw, and they're kept in for the first two weeks of their life so that they stay safe and they can make sure they're nursing. And then they're turned out onto this beautiful grass field that has no rocks and no hills, and they don't get any of that concussion on the bottom of their little teeny tiny feet that helps them form a solid coffin bone and a nice heel structure and then they have to start racing and whatever age they start them training to race they put shoes on them and then oftentimes out here they shoe them aerodynamically so that their foot will flip over one of a second faster mm-hmm. but that's ne- necessarily a shape of a shoe that's healthy for a horse and just all these factors so mm-hmm. that that kind of fascinates me that mm-hmm. part of that but here in the East, I was you said, let's geek out on hooves. I was geeking out on your bucking stock hooves that Adam was uh, working with yeah. and really wanted to go to that ranch time and said, why do you want to go? I said, I want to see what they eat, and I want to see where they walk all the time because they have beautiful feet. And it just goes along with what I've been studying about heck, that guy. He gets them, they're born, and he turns them out on that big range. They go up and down those hills. And they have whatever rocks it is that you guys have in your soil. I don't know what it's called, but it sure was nice for feet. I was geeking out on your dirt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty, it is rocky. It's, you know, we're sort of in an arid climate, but we're not a desert. It's certainly not sandy, really, unless you get down into a stream bottom. But, you know, I don't think it's probably that far off if people could, if you can replicate this, I think is the point. You can get road base, you can get rock dust, you can put different kinds of uh environments, uh, you could do a rock scatter so that they're picking up their feet and, and then laying it down in some, you know, sort of rough gravelly dirt combo or whatever. And that's some of the stuff I watch too. So somebody doesn't think, well, I have to have a hill in California in order to have good
4: feet. No, and that's a grant that we're working on. We're working on a grant to start a track system at our rescue because our rescue is the side of a river and we have all this beautiful black dirt and West Virginia red clay. But it's all mushy and squishy and there's no substance to it, even if you, you know, not on the top, not if you get down a little bit, you have to bring stuff in. And so Mm -hmm. for a horse rescue, that's an astronomical extent. So it's one of the things that we're working on a grant for sure. But the thing about the raising the foals is, I think, one of the most important things for people to understand is, yeah, let the foal be born, make sure it's nursing, and then throw it outside and let it run because... That's the best thing you can do for the the horse's feet because in the beginning, the hoof shape is what shapes the coffin bone. And then once the horse is four or five, it's the coffin bone that shapes the hoof. So right. to grow a big, sturdy coffin bone, you've got to have movement and concussion and not living in a stall with a bunch of straw. Yep. I really
1: do think that is... 2.0 in horses, and horsemanship these days. I think people are starting to get to that point. I'm so glad you're proponing, proponent of that because you're such a, as a rescue and a, a voice out there to the public, you're such an influencer for good horsemanship and good stabling and housing of horses that the more you can do exp- experimentally to see what's working and what's not working, at least in your region, the more people we build, they'll be convicted, I think, to look to their own backyards maybe and where they're keeping their horses and see if we can house them a little bit differently. So, keep on trucking on that. Keep on trying to educate us. And I'm so Pleased and proud of what you and Heart of Phoenix have done. How long have you been there now? Ten plus years, I think we said, right? Ten plus years, yeah. Yeah, amazing. How do people find you? How do they get a hold of you, Susanna? And how do they get a hold of Heart of Phoenix? Tell us
4: where we should go. Well, they can find us on Facebook. It's Heart of Phoenix Equine Rescue. And they can also find us through our website, which is wvhorserescue.org.
1: Okay, wvhorserescue.org. It'll be in the show notes, but if you're listening in the car, that was wvhorserescue.org. And I love what you're doing, and I hope people will support you. Go and do a little donation to Heart of Phoenix because you're doing the right thing. And being a good student too, Suzanne, I really admire you and appreciate you, and I hope we can have you back too and What's brush hogging on your tractor? Okay, you said you had some spare time occasionally. <laughs> and you put down here that you brush hog on your tractor. What the heck is that?
4: That's where you your horses are out in the field and they leave the things that are not edible for horses. And so you've got all this chewed down grass. And then you've got these long sticky things sticking up. And you got to go out there with your... Tractor mower, which is called a brush hog. Do you guys okay. have brush hogs in California? I don't know about you've it.
1: never heard <laughs> of a brush hog? <laughs> You're so East Coast you two. No, no. I
4: <laughs> brush, hog. brush hogging is not just an East Coast thing. It's not. It's it's, it's a it's so a type I- of rotary mower that you put behind your giant tractor. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you go and mow mowing rows or diagonals or wh- however you want. I'm mowing squares when I get bored, whatever, and <laughs> knock, knock down the stuff that horses won't eat. Because I won't I name. won't <laughs> keep my fields like weed-free and all of that because I think that Mother Nature designed some of those weeds uh-huh. for horses to eat. Like a horse that isn't feeling well, if there's a willow tree in a pasture, you'll notice mm-hmm. them chewing on the willow tree all the time. That's why, because it's kind of like horse aspirin. So I won't get rid of all the weeds in my field. I let it be kind of natural. I mean, I lime it and do that kind of stuff. But And so there are things out there that the horses really don't touch. You have to go knock it down or you've got big things of ragweed growing in your field or thistles or something. Right. Yeah. No, we do keep that all knocked down. It's called what? That's called bush hogging or brush hogging. It depends on who you talk to. See? Okay, I'm feeling regional already. Okay. There you go. You got. You got. Sometime when you're on the East Coast visiting friends, you need to hop on a tractor and do yourself some brush hogging I or bush hogging. Some it's brush therapeutic. You, you put it's on your headphones. Cathartic. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, it's cathartic. Yeah. There we go. Okay, I'm coming to see you. All right, I don't put
4: I on my headphones though, because you hit a big rock and then you tear the the gearbox out of your brush hog. You can't hear it when you're hitting a rock. Oh, no, you, gotta, you gotta, gotta have the right. On. You gotta have the right shear pin in there, or your SOL. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks love a love lot, in, Susanna. All right, Susanna. Thanks
4: again. Okay. Enjoyed talking to you.
1: Let's talk about American Harvest. I spoke with the founder, John Paracha, this last week to share how well our transition horses are responding to his equine hemp pellets. That's what we've been feeding them while they're being trained for their next homes through adoption. Equine hemp utilizes their raw CBD technology and was designed by their veterinarian, Dr. Silver. They proudly utilize no chemical processing in the manufacturing of equine hemp, and it comes in four-pound, two-pound, and one-pound packages. To get some for your horse today, go to ahihemp.com. That stands for American Harvest, so it's A-H-I-H-E-M-P.com. And you can sign up to receive 10% off on your first order while you're over there, too. James Oliver is an Army combat veteran and a counselor for the nonprofit Palmer Drug Abuse Program. James has a Bachelor of Science degree and a background in kinesiology, too. He is taking a step away from work with the at-risk youth right now in order to work with thoroughbreds at Flagazette Farms. He's the new kid on the block in the racing barn and is doing a great job. James Oliver, I'm so glad to have you on our show. You've never been on Horsemanship Radio, right?
0: That's correct. Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: My pleasure. And I was really excited to put you on this episode with another lady who also got into horses a little bit later in life. But I think I'll start this is just a conversation. So I'll start with a couple of questions that give a little background to our listeners mm-hmm. about you. So you're unique to the horse industry, I think. And I believe that you will inspire some more people to follow your journey and, and maybe find new paths that lead people to work with horses.
0: Do you feel like you're unique? Uh, I do. I do. Um, I got into horses when I was about 35 years old. Of course, I'm 43 now. And I got into horses through the uh, Horse Sense and Healing Clinic back in 2015 that Amonty facilitated.
1: Yeah, great. And I'm so glad you're here. We've had a lot of fun learning horses together, learning the program together. Where did you grow up? And was it with horses?
0: It was not. I grew up here in Southern California in the beautiful town of Thousand Oaks. And there's a couple horse properties in Thousand Oaks. And when I first heard about this program, I was kind of a jerk, fresh out of the Army, and I had some strong opinions and a chip on my shoulder. A gentleman from Team Rubicon offered this this program to me. And from my experience with horse people in Southern California... I was a little turned off. My experience with them was that they're very focused on horses. And if you weren't interested in horses, they really didn't want much to do with your existence. So it was after the second time Monty's program was suggested to me that I decided to take up the offer and realized it was so much more than riding and some of the more simple things we do with the horses.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. I don't think anybody would argue with the fact that horse owners can be argumentative, <laughs> but but we're very opinionated. And I guess we think our way is is the only way. I love where dad said, if you show me a different way, that way it'll be my way tomorrow. And I think that quality in him is that he's a lifetime learner. And I think you also have that quality that continues to create different paths for you and different journeys for you, what are the qualities of horses that brought you to them or that you most appreciate?
0: Well, oh boy, that's a big one. Besides their beauty and their patience and their physique, they're just they're incredible. What the philosophy and psychology really taught me was I learned about pressure. The horses as flight animals are so sensitive to all kinds of pressures and it's important for them to be that way, so they can get away from threats and threat assessment and all that stuff. So they're so in tune with our breathing and our adrenaline and and our heart rate. So I learned my impact on the horse in the round pen and how sensitive they could be to this pressure. After that clinic in 2015, I realized how I could apply that to my own life. And I started to see how kind of how much a jerk I was to myself. The pressure I would put on myself and the pressure I would put on other people and unrealistic expectations of of perfectionism and all of this. So it really changed my trajectory in my life. That's when I started to pursue a job in counseling. I got an entry-level position in Westlake, California, working with adolescents. And then shortly after that, I started to go to school for counseling. And I kept returning up to Monty's as a participant in the Horse Sense and Healing program. And then to a mentor and uh, just to see the changes in the participants and all the different instructors that would come up, Denise Heinlein and Jamie Jennings, just such incredible qualities of people that they were more than horse people. They were people as well.
1: Yeah, that's you've named some icons, too, that have come through here. We're very fortunate to have some really great people come through and that you've been a part of some of those great teachers, too. So let's get off the, um, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. What about horses is the most challenging for you?
0: The most challenging. All the horses have backstories. Mm. And Monty has a quote. I'm probably hacking it up. It's uh, blaming the horse is like blaming the night for being dark. Yep. So yep. when I go with the horses, it's important for me to not judge them on anything and just understand them how they are. With the acceptance of I have no idea how many things led to how they are in that moment Mm. and just to be with them and hold that intention of being with them. And they do the same for me uh, to the best of my knowledge. And it's really overlapped into my human to human Mm. join ups, if you will, in that I don't judge other people. It's not about that. No,
1: of course you don't. And I think... You've made that bridge. Suddenly, you made that bridge as you were speaking. I think into people, which is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So we went from "What about horses?" is the most challenging to the fact that you've recognized that in people mm-hmm. and um, not knowing their background. And it's a great—it's a great perspective, isn't it? To to not know a person's background and then assume things, and then when they maybe act out of an assumptive character and they jump outside that and they're different, we can sort of empathize with them. I think more if we treat horses that way, if we look at horses as like, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know what they've been through. They can't communicate it very well. Well, I think they're pretty good at communicating, frankly, but a lot of people don't recognize some of the language that they're trying to tell us, like, I really had trouble with people and here's where I had trouble. But people are like that too, I think, don't you?
0: Oh, absolutely. We have no idea what brought them to this day and their opinion and their force of that opinion on us just to accept them as the way they are. Mm-hmm. So it's important for us to understand where another person is coming from. And if something comes up that we don't understand, to ask questions and communicate. And that's another part of this whole process of of being with the horse is if they do something we don't like, we look within ourselves, how can we communicate and get a better idea what they're seeing, what their perspective is? Mm. It just seems very, it's been applicable to my life uh, since I came to this program and just accepting the people the way they are and accepting that I have no idea all the conditions that brought them to their opinion in this moment. But all that really matters, again, is this moment. And that segues perfectly into the horses are always present, always in the moment. And one of my the biggest things I like about the horse is their ability to move forward you can observe them and they'll nip at each other, snap at each other, pin their ears back. And then two or three seconds later, they're right on with their lives.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. You I mean they don't hold a grudge? I don't think so. No,
0: no. No.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, and you recognize those qualities. And that's why I like to share with those people that attend our Horse Sense and Healing or maybe Horsemanship 101, some of the courses that have almost by definition, beginner horse people in them. I like to share that the way that they can get more horse experience is maybe go volunteer at a rescue where they certainly need more hands and help. Go volunteer at a therapeutic Where there is always need for grooming and feeding and cleaning stalls, Um, but they'll get their horsey time. They'll get around horses more, and I think you're a good example of sort of slowly, pervasively getting more and more time with horses
0: until they become look at this, a part of your life. Absolutely. After coming to Monty's program, I looked up in my own neighborhood the different horse facilities and. This equine therapy is growing so much these days. I highly encourage anyone that wants more horse time to just seek out in your local areas, different horse ranches and see if they offer the equine programs because then they will be looking for people to help muck, help saddle. Or in my case, it was autistic equine therapy riding alongside the horse and just being there for the horse and for the participants. And there's a lot of need out there and it gives great horsey time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. And the need is great. But also, I think if, if we recognize how therapeutic or the qualities of horses can be therapeutic, then I think more and more people will want to be around horses. But what I like about you and what I like about people that have just a little introduction to Monty's concepts is that you're not a know-it-all, you're a learn-it-all. And how far do you feel like you've gone on that spectrum? Do you've got like miles to go or do you feel like you're getting pretty into it?
0: I, I feel like I have miles to go and I'm getting into it. I like to say that I'll be a, a student for the rest of my life. I'm mentored by Monty, but I'm also mentored by a five-year-old kid who just reminds me of the wisdom and the beauty and the enthusiasm we can carry on throughout our day. So I'm excited to to continue to learn I also just feel like I have an incredible base in the psychology and philosophy of the flight animal because we all have some of that flight animal in us. We've all been children. We've all been afraid. And uh, a lot of us that have been to war or very traumatic experiences, you know, we know what it's like to be afraid. And what we want to do for each other is provide a calm place to where there is no reason to be afraid. And that's the best we can do for each other mm-hmm. and the horses.
1: Mm-hmm. Very good. Do you believe that um, other veterans not only prosper by this, but do you do you think that it's a good thing that veterans seek this out? Or is it tough for a veteran to say, I've been through war and I don't quite understand why horses do that? You want to speak to them a little bit?
0: Oh, yeah. Once again, this program is so much more than, a, you know, we, we we don't ride the horses. It's really... We supply tools to anyone, veteran, first responder, at risk youth. We supply tools, and it's almost kind of a spiritual thing because these tools go within the individual, and the individual realizes where they can use these tools. You know, our programs are not a bunch of heavy processing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We give tools, and then the participants will realize where they can use the tools in their own life. And that's part of why I just keep coming back is to see the the changes in people's lives. It's just so foundational. And the beautiful thing is it's all intrinsic. It happens inside of them without our force, just like we don't want to force the horse to do something. We don't want to force somebody into healing because ultimately it happens on the inside.
1: Mm, That's great. You do have some training and some background in motivational interviewing. And if people want to look that up, they can get a uh, a little more foundation on it. But why did you train up in motivational interviewing? What was your impetus?
0: Uh just very blessed with the way uh, everything worked out. You know, I was in school for counseling and it was an entire semester on Motivational interviewing, and it just clicked in my head. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is what Monty is doing with the horses. In the sense of, if I'm working with uh, an adolescent, I tell them, I'm like, You are the driver of the car, I'm the passenger. It would be dangerous for me to grab that steering wheel, and you have enough people telling you what to do. Mm. (laughs) I bet that resonates.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, you work with horses mostly from the ground. So, do you imagine that you might learn to ride, or are you intrigued? more with just the equine behavior
0: training. Definitely intrigued by the training. They learn so quick and they're so patient with us and gentle. Every movement they do, it's beautiful to watch. But I do see myself learning to ride. I could do some name drops, but I will uh, withhold from that. We have some local people in the area that would be interested in helping me learn. I feel like I have a great foundation philosophically and psychologically to make a good connection with the horses.
1: Yeah, great. So you can imagine what join up looks like in the saddle, huh?
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for being with us. I'm glad to um, have introduced you to the, the listeners. And I think we'd love to follow your story too. Is there anything else that you wanted to add?
0: Thank you so much for having me and everything your family has done. And it's beautiful to be a part of it. And it is my mission as well to not make the world a better place, mm-hmm. but to leave it a better place for horses and for each other during this unique time. Mm, You already are. Thank you, James.
1: Well, welcome. We have Monty Roberts back. Hi, Dad.
3: Hello. How are you doing?
1: Good. I'm getting excited here at Flag Is Up because as we speak on this date, we're early in March yet, we are preparing a portion of the farm to be transformed, I think would be the word, from a 1D Area that's beautifully, I don't know, natural and feeds the deer and is a pretty quiet area of the farm. It's going to be transformed into a a mountain trail experience, and the deer can still be there. But um, and so I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about trail, why trail, what's the history of trail, and yeah, and 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 how it engages so many different disciplines and horses in different ways.
3: Yeah, that's that'll be fun for me. I've had a thought I've only known for a couple of hours or so that I was going to do this, but um, it, you know, my brain has just been ticking away because the more I think about it, the more interesting it becomes. And I certainly wouldn't be talking about this if it caused my precious deer to be disengaged from their property in any <laughs> way, um, and it doesn't. But I would like to take you back to 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Mm-hmm. We were in the Second World War, and the horse shows took on a very different personality. And that is that in 1941, I was only six years old, but I was already showing horses for two years. I showed my first horse when I was four. and. The first horse I showed was in Western stock horse, if you can believe. Mm-hmm. cantering, stopping, spinning, backing up at the age of four. And um, what else happened at a horse show in those days? Not much else happened at a horse show in those days. Through the 1930s, there were gated horses and there were jumpers mm-hmm. and there were hunters But um, the Western was Western equitation and Western pleasure and a little bit of this thing called the trail horse. And a trail horse class was really not a trail horse class at all. It fit into coliseums and horse show rings. And it was a few obstacles that you went through. And the better the horse did it, the higher the score. After 1941, something really happened. And that meant that a lot of horse shows were canceled. Mm. And they moved slightly outward to ranches and farms and things. And natural horse trail classes began to occur. And I thought they were fun. So I had some horses that could do these things pretty well. And it became a kind of a popular thing to have these meadow or foothill trail classes, not mountain trail classes, because then they couldn't happen unless you had mountains. So they had them in meadows and uh, foothills, mostly. And sometimes you had to go over a little jump, and sometimes you had to back through a narrow hallway and things like that. But what was happening was that anybody could do it with any kind of saddle and any kind of uh, background of horsemanship at all. And the better you did it, the higher the score. All through until about 1946, when the American Horse Shows Association took over, and they started to base their contests on horse show rings and not meadows and foothills and things like that. But Because the war had made us interested in the trail classes, they brought a trail class into the horse show rings. And as it went along, along comes the American Quarter Horse Association, and they wanted a bit of a different change. So it was a class where you had to ride a horse through a specific set of obstacles. And those obstacles had to be the same right across this country from New York to San Diego or Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. They had to be the same. And they were done with barrels, oil barrels and and poles and gates. You had to open a gate and close the gate, go over the poles. And then you had to start a procedure of, it was called a Western riding class, Oh, okay. And that's, that, that's sort of silly. Western riding class. What is Western riding class? You're riding a Western saddle, but the Quarter Horse Association had it become a Western saddle class. And you rode over these poles after opening and closing the gate. And then you began a situation where you walked, trot, and cantered, and you changed leads on a uh, S-shaped course that was outlined for you. The same in every town. And then you had to change on the straight, bingity, bingity, bing, about four strides left lead, bingity, bingity, bing, about four strides right lead, mm. and you you had to go two straight lines changing leads. And um, I had never done that one because now, after the war, I was in the big time, man. I was in the cutting and rain cow horse, and I was show jumping, and I was riding gated horses, and it was you know the western riding class was for ladies and gentlemen of a certain age and they went very dim in a very demure way through this already outlined course and then it began to change about in 1966 or 67 i heard about the mountain trail course and they had these things connected with oftentimes These rides of a nature whereby you rode 20 miles and things like that, endurance things. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, they had a mountain trail course. And people of a certain mentality started to think up things to do with mountain trail courses. And these became very intricate. I mean, you had to go across swinging bridges. You had to back over things. You had to walk through water. You had to do all sorts of things, and they didn't stay the same. They started putting them in areas, not coliseums and horse show rings, but in areas that were more commensurate with the foothills or the mountains, in fact, uh, almost like mountain cliffs and stuff that they would build. And... Now, Debbie, my daughter, who is on this line, got interested in that. Why? Because there were a lot of people that wanted to do this. And the lady of a certain age and the gentleman of the certain age could get interested in this. And with a little um, effort, they could train their horse to do these crazy things as well as the, you know, consummate trainer could do. And that became exciting to a lot of people. See? And so the the entries began to climb and climb and climb in numbers. And now all over the United States, the mountain trail courses are becoming very popular. And along comes my daughter and says, I want one in the infield of your racetrack. And um, they only cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars oh, to build or <laughs> <Well>, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they are they are very, very involved, and they do have different elevations. They have different requests that you make of a horse, and they are not consistent in that they are the exact same thing in Denver as they are in uh, Los Angeles or Dallas, Texas. They have variations, and some of these guys that have uh, started to make these are very intelligent people who've come up with the wildest ideas. And then you say, well, a horse can't even do that. And danged if they don't show up at 65 years of age and just, you know, ride like a pleasure rider would. But their horse has been trained by them to do these things. And they go very quietly and they think their way through. Oh, horses aren't that intelligent. Yes. a hold of yourself. The intelligence of these horses is just unbelievable how they will settle down step by step and go through these things. It's very intriguing. And uh, for someone that won 11 world championships in these other events that are so popular and so important, looks in awe at the mountain trail classes. So... I'm yeah, going to be exciting. gone, but you guys are going to have one right in my infield. And
1: This, uh, be, this one is going to be built in the next couple of weeks, and I don't think yeah. you're going anywhere. So, the um, yeah, the whole thing is built. Well, they built the obstacles in Washington State uh, just because that's where all the wood is, apparently. But those were shipped down, and they're in the infield right now. But here's what we're bringing in, logs and rocks and a and a lake, and we have a liner and gravel and all these things. So we are literally bringing the mountain to the infield. But it's, uh, I think the transformation that's pretty cool for the horses is that each element or each obstacle has its levels, and a good trainer is going to help that horse. In hand, maybe, maybe we start in hand for those transition horses that are two, three, four off the track. We're also going to have then the elementary uh, approach to the obstacle. Maybe it's um, a suspension bridge that you get your horse, hopefully, cause to want to cross the suspension bridge. But then there's the more advanced levels as your horse relaxes or as they train you to. Understand the obstacles better. Then there is stop at the middle of the suspension bridge, do a three sixty, and keep on going, or do a one eighty and go back the other way. You know, there's different levels. Go off the side. I'm not sure about that one, but uh, there's there's these different levels, and that way the competitions that we're going to have here, which will be really fun. Will have the different levels, the different age groups, the different uh, variety of horses, the different saddles. I don't care what saddle they have, do
3: you? I don't care at all. And I saw videos of uh, a guy that was, I'm sure, very uh, competent ride halfway across the suspension bridge forward and then stop and reverse the horse over the same part of the extension bridge that he just traveled in a forward motion. Unbelievable. Nobody would believe that a horse could do that. But this horse did, and he would look back. You could see him looking back to place his foot in the right place. It's quite uh, extraordinary, really.
1: What do you think makes the difference? Did he just find the most uh, unique unicorn horse out there, or did he train for that? And what do you think made the difference?
3: Well, I think the guy made the difference, but I do think that he found a horse that was up to that and um, had the kind of thinking mind that a horse would require to do it. Just like any other event, really, you find the best horse, you win the most championships. And this doesn't have to be competitive. It really doesn't. It can be so much fun to just watch your horse learn and do these things just for your own pleasure, not necessarily a competitive thing
1: right what do you think about the in-hand were they back in 1941 when they started did they did they imagine the in-hand
3: no never thought about it at all the only thing they did in hand then was to single line lunge which was destructive to horses (laughs) but on the trails uh, though were were people out there walking the trails well there's no question that i rode on trails in the mountains the sierras here in california where people would get off and have their horse on about a 20-foot lead, and then they would go across the stream and then lead their horse across the stream from 20 feet away, and the horse would leap across the stream and then plow into the water, and they didn't want to ride the horse through that thing. So, But today, you would stop and maybe lead them over, and then lead them again until they placed one foot down and pretty soon relaxed and walked across it. And then you could get on and ride them across. So it evolves into an educational process whereby the horse understands what they're to do. And I tell you that the horses come a lot closer to what dogs can learn. And you see some of these dogs in these... um, things Mm -hmm. yeah agility drills that's what they do to think it through you know well horses can come close to that i didn't believe it until recently and i saw videos of these horses really thinking through the mountain trail courses and it's quite extraordinary
1: yeah our design yes i agree that our designer's name is mark bolander and he is designing these courses around the nation although they're very rare still and uh so people do come from a long way away to to be able to use them or compete on them whatever their their uh, interest is but uh, there are no others in california which is Pretty exciting that we finally got one here in horse country too. I think Mark has, he's a great combination of engineer. He does own a, building company, a contracting company, and a horse person that came on later in life with horses. And he does now, he even has a briar horse. His horse checkers will be here with us in June and Mark will come back into a clinic in June. So I'm excited about that. But I'm really excited about a train the trainers and allowing people in this local area to come in and train under him. So they're qualified to to yeah. uh, use the trail and, and teach those too. What do you think makes a good Trail trainer.
3: Well, I think anything that you train for uh, has about the same kind of person that becomes a great trainer. And that's the one that can cause the horse to want to do it and not force the horse to do it. Forcing the horse to do it is gone. Those people will lose, and the ones that cause the horse to want to are winning. And if you look at what's happening in the various disciplines of our world, it's the horses that have followed a lot of my concepts, show jumping people, oh, there's some some of the biggest in the in the world now are saying violence isn't the answer. And just to force a horse to go across the mountain trail thing is wrong, and they won't learn as well. It's the guy that causes the horse, or our lady, that causes the horse to want to do it. And that's the slowing down process and letting the horse think it through and then gain something for doing the thing. It's a a process of education for my certified instructors, but once it happens, I mean, think about it. Uh, I went to Germany for a horse called Lomitas who was going to be put down because he was trying to kill people and wouldn't go in the starting gate and they couldn't race him anymore. And I worked with him 10 days, and he went in and won and became horse of the year and produced a horse of the year. And the three generations after him earned $50 million on the racetracks. Mm-hmm. And that was simply a way to take the old world of violence and force. That horse has to know who's boss. Take that all out of it and cause the horse to want to. mm mm-hmm
1: yeah absolutely and the and the observational skills that you have are surpassed uh, by no one i don't think there's any there's any question about that so if you are going to impart and and you know you are going to do this with your certified instructors to impart some of the ways to look at a trail and the outcomes for them teaching trail what would you say to the certified instructor that says, but this horse will never cross water. He, you know, he's always been phobically afraid of water or this horse is, you know, afraid of where he puts his feet when it comes to rocks or I don't know, you know, what the there's definitely phobias.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's horses, Debbie, that won't walk over a tarpaulin. Right. And yet I went all over the world and I did the lake and stream demonstration And the lake and stream is a very large tarpaulin in a round pin. So that leaves a moat around of about six or eight feet that the horse has to stay on because he won't put his foot on the tarpaulin. And then you have a little stream, and that's a rolled up tarpaulin. And it's only about six inches, and he starts to jump over it. And then gradually you open that up, and he jumps over it. And pretty soon it's 10 feet wide, and he can't jump over it. (laughs) So he puts his foot on it, and then it doesn't kill him. And in a 30-minute demonstration, 100% of the horses brought to me with that phobia were then following me without a lead on, right. following me across the lake in the middle with no force whatsoever. Right. And people would just sit with their mouths open. Right, but you, or cry. You to, I, I've seen or it. Or cry. <laughs> you, But you have to allow your core to diaphragmatically breathe so that they know You're not anxious. You're not fighting. You're not forcing them to do anything. You are watching carefully to what they learn and then rewarding them for the thing that they learn. It's so much fun to do it that way. Yeah. And, And you know, pretty soon your body can't see it any other way.
1: I suppose. I suppose that's what you're getting to as or that's I guess the ethereal position you want to get to by end of life is that being able to achieve that. The word I was thinking you were going to say too is incremental because even though it's 30 minutes, you give that horse a chance to put a foot on, but then do you make him go across now? He's touched it and he knows it doesn't kill him. Or do you back him off and say, that was great, but let's try that again.
3: Yeah. The rub between the eyes, standing him in the moat, and then, turning him around and looking back at that little stream. And then you walk over the stream and be careful because he might jump it. But then he comes across and you rub him again and you go back and forth. And pretty soon he says, you know, if you can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And he follows you. It's, it's absolutely. And then the joy of watching a horse Learn instead of watching a horse do it because they're made to. Mm. The joy of that is just overwhelming.
1: Watching them overcome that. Now, let's also add a pony horse or an anchor to the situation. What do you think?
3: Well, yeah, now you're making it really easy because if you put an older horse in there that will walk over the tarpaulin and have him go in front, oh, it happens in no time at all. And they will mold to another horse quicker than they'll mold to the human. But I never did that in in my demonstrations. I did it myself. But one thing I do like for a head shy horse is I get on another horse that they are accustomed to and then bring them up and then move to their ears from the back of another horse. And nobody ever twisted their ears when they were sitting on another horse. So they let you do it right away and then you gradually step off the horse or bring another person in and gradually you show them that you don't have to hurt them when you go up and touch their ears and i've i've won some bets that you can't believe on that that score but um, anyway it's it's just so much fun and at 87 years of age i'm i'm still having so much fun watching the horses learn instead of forcing the horses to learn And when I see it with people, it's even more gratifying than seeing it with the horses because every person then does it with the next hundred horses or something. And yeah. yeah, And the the whirlwind broadens, you know?
1: Yeah. I love it. Well, I'm looking at this little bit of a drawing. It's not the final one, but there's things on this called Texas two-step and, uh, Balance beam and teeter- totter and rolling bridge. That's an exciting one. and oh, yeah. and um, swinging bridge suspension bridge. Uh, there's a trestle bridge. Uh, there's boxes. There's w- not only that big pond that we talked about, but there's also uh, water boxes to walk through, cross logs. Cross bucks is another one where they're up and down and up and down. Uh, rock scatters, uh, step ups, mazes. Oh my gosh, we have found many, many ways to train or, or torture, however you look at it.
3: Yeah, and you have to, you have to keep that word incremental, very close to you when you start these things, because for instance, the swinging bridge. Mm. I've watched him go across the bridge on a video uh, with the, that was absolutely swinging like you can't believe. And that horse was just let, waiting until it stopped and then take another step and then wait till it stops, take another step. And that didn't happen overnight. And it didn't happen without the bridge only moving a little bit at first. And then a little more and a little more and a little more. It's absolutely incredible what incremental training will do for you. And a lot of people who are traditional in their thoughts will say, well, I don't have time for all of that. So they'll take six months to get a horse to do it. And in six minutes, you might get the horse to do it when you do it incrementally.
1: Well, I hope people will take that to heart go home and practice and then come visit us and come see our huge mountain trail course it'll be really fun yeah well thanks thanks for sharing a little history of trail and also uh your training via radio (laughs) of trail obstacles yeah and i thank you for sharing not only the mountain trail land with us but also with the deer
3: yeah and i have a group of students waiting for me to talk to them right now. So I, I'll leave you, Debbie. But um, uh, invite everybody to come. Uh, the gate says visitors welcome.
1: Mean it. Thank you.
3: Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm coming to you now to talk about the Monty Roberts Online University. You know, there ought to be six months in everybody's life where they just live with their animals. I've been staying home, but uh, three months now. I've been home with this virus thing, and the things I'm learning, we're bringing you a new series, What Horses See, How Horses See, and About Horses Seeing Things. The Online University is bringing you the last three years of my learning process, which I promise you is the learningest years I ever spent. The Monty Roberts Online University, uh, you won't miss a minute of it if you get started on it. I love bringing it to you and it's my shot to take my concepts to the next generation.
1: Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. In March, we have March 22 through 24, there's an introductory course module three that's on long lining, and it's with two lines, of course. And in March 29 through 31, we have our introductory course module four, and there'll be some people preparing for the intro exams then. So join us with that if you've taken the other three modules ahead of that. April... We have four through eight. We have intro exams. Those are all those people rounded up that have taken one, two, and three, and possibly four. So the introductory exams are April four through eight. Then we have a popular April 9th, Horsemanship 101. Then April 22 through 24, we have another Horse Sense and Healing, one of six that we have all year. So if you have veterans or anybody with post-traumatic stress that has been in a service industry, veterans fire, police, EMTs, trauma nurses, all that are invited to look us up for the Horses and Healing April 22 through 24. Then April 25 through 29, we have our Gentling Wild Horse course, five days of fun. It's really exciting back in our Gentling Wild Horse facility. And then in May, and a little farther out here now, we have our exams coming up and we will have Denise Heinlein back from Germany, assuming that they let her out of the country these days with COVID. But May 2 through 13 are the advanced exams and you know who you are eligible for that. And May 16 through June 3 are the advanced courses. And those are the people that are ready for the advanced courses and have passed the intro exams and invited to the advanced course. Then June, this is long-term planners, June 17 through 19. I'm so excited for the movement. This is our fifth annual, the 17, 18, 19 of June. We'll have our movement 2022. And um, it is composed of two days of wonderful horsemanship plus a third day of Wait for it. This is the first time we've had this. The third day of private sessions with our renowned experts across all subjects. And you'll have to go to that website. Go to MontyRoberts.com and click on the tab at the top that says Movement. And you will find out all about our event and who is coming. And here's a hint. There's a lot of HRN, that's Horse Radio Network, hosts that will be there in fact it's pretty much a host meetup but they're all experts as you know and we'll be announcing all of those on that page so if you want to go there right now go to montyroberts.com and movement forward slash movement and click on the tab
2: for details about today's show, go to www.HorsemanshipRadio.com, where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under www.Facebook.com slash Roberts, Twitter at www.Twitter.com slash Roberts, and Instagram, Instagram.com slash Monty underscore Roberts.
1: Oh, yeah. my gosh. I'm in awe of your radio voice. That was oh, so Oh,
2: you're too kind. <laughs> I, I <laughs> went too far. My apologies.
1: You almost stepped on my lines. You were having so much fun, didn't you? Okay. I was. I was. <laughs> no, I get to thank our sponsors. And those are Hands-On Gloves, American Harvest, Inc., and MontyRobertsUniversity.com. That's the reason for being. Be sure to visit all the other great shows on the Horse Radio Network, too, at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours.